Good morning. This week's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Valentine, for reading this morning. Uh, Somebody this week uh, had a conversation and reminded me about something I said, and I think it was the first sermon of our Mark series. I had no idea I had said that. Um, but they, had, they talked about how we had uh, discussed on that first morning when we began our Mark series months back, we asked the question, how will you be changed by the gospel of Mark? How will you be transformed by this book as we were beginning it months ago now? We'll be finishing it uh, in the new year. How will you be changed by it? Because anytime we come to Scripture, if we just hear it and walk away or don't actually apply it to ourselves, We're missing out on the greatest intent and purpose of God's Word that we have and the greatest resource we have. So as we're over halfway through this book now, let's continue to ask that. How are you being changed by the Gospel of Mark? How is God using it in your life? Well, two weeks ago I said we have a couple of difficult weeks coming up, if you remember that. As we finished up Mark 9 and as we now transition into Mark 10, the two options were either to speak on hell a couple weeks ago Or this morning, divorce and marriage. And after preparing this week, I still say hell was the easier topic. (laughs) I still stand by that statement. You know, this morning's text is a perfect example of the reason why at Bethany Church, our primary diet is uh, expository preaching. Why we go through books, for the most part, uh, from the beginning to the end of a book and explaining the text. Why do we do that? You can't avoid avoid hard passages. 
When you do that, you cannot avoid hard passages. And that's what we do here at Bethany Church. We do. We go through books of the Bible from beginning to end so that we do have to go through these hard passages. I can tell you my week would have been a lot easier this week by skipping this text. I almost even pushed it off a week and was going to pull out a canned sermon to give me more time to prepare. Uh, We're not. We're going through this morning. Um, But uh, our morning this morning would be easier too in some ways. If we just never brought this topic up, if we never talked about it. But I believe, we believe at Bethany Church that the Word of God is the inspired Word of God, inspired so that there is blessing this morning, even in these hard texts and every text of the Bible this morning. And on on top of that, marriage is just too important of a topic not to, or, or to skip over. Uh, The great theologian and even uh, mystery fiction writer G.K. Chesterton said this about marriage and family, really, is this triangle of truisms of father, mother, and child. This triangle cannot be destroyed. It can only destroy those civilizations which disregard it. What do you mean by that? So much rests on the family, rests on marriage. Civilization itself rests on the health of its families. Not to mention, as we'll talk this morning, the fallout and destruction on individuals and families and communities that's caused by divorce. Add to that, there are a few topics that take uh, as much pastoral uh, sensitivity than the topic of divorce and remarriage and marriage itself. To get it wrong has huge consequences, huge consequences for the church or our, our world Or uh, how about for a woman who may feel trapped in an abusive marriage? If we get it wrong, there are real lives at stake and real consequences. On the other hand, if we downplay the importance of marriage and we get it wrong that way, we bring great shame to the name of Christ. If we empty marriage of its meaning and of its importance, as we heard even that uh, Ephesians 5 passage I prayed today. And so what do we do this morning? We move forward. We move into this passage and we trust Jesus' words. We trust that they are good for us. We trust that as we open and read and explain and apply them today, they will have the impact that he desires. Let me say a short prayer for us. Lord, use your word today. There are, actually everybody in this room has been impacted by uh, the sin of divorce. And we've all contributed at times to the breakdown in our own marriages. And so use your word today. May the gospel be a sweet balm to the hurting as well today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, before we explore the text, there's a few things I wanted to do. I wanted to give us a few considerations as we take into account our context, Jesus' context, uh, before we unpack the text. So we're going to quickly look, real quickly, just at five first considerations I'm calling them before we get into a few points on this text. And they will, as I said, build a context for us. So let's work through a few. Here's the first one. The redefining of marriage from covenantal to contractual. Two big words there, but I want to help us understand them. The redefining that's taken place in our culture, in our world of marriage from covenantal to contractual. It hasn't happened overnight. Hasn't happened overnight. But we are in a moment of history where we are reaping the bad fruit, I would say, rotten fruit of a march towards redefining marriage that has redefined it from a God-given now covenant, which is like a contractual or covenantal binding agreement between two parties before God, how God defined it, 
between a man and a woman before God, a relationship and a covenant that's ordered towards procreation, towards children, towards family, all of those things, raising them and the stability that that brings, companionship for the husband and wife too, for the good of the family and the community. Covenantal, right there. And redefining it, it's been transformed into more of a contractual definition. What do I mean by that? A contractual, maybe self-fulfillment contract, you might call it. You keep up your end of the bargain to fulfill me, and I'll keep up mine to please you, and we'll be good. But break that contract, I'm out. I'm out. Think of Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin's conscious uncoupling. Perfect phrase for the, the redefinition of marriage from covenantal to contractual. They called it a conscious uncoupling as if that's even possible. Uh, Stanley Harwas was his name. He was a Duke uh, a sociologist. He talked about this new definition of, of contract. He said, destructive to marriage is this self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is there is someone that is just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks the crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate that we always marry marry the wrong person. (laughs) What did he mean by that? Well, we actually, do you know we actually expect more out of our marriages and our spouses than our ancestors did? We expect way more out of them. You're my everything. Just think of any pop song. They've taken language for God and they've replaced that uh, love language for God and they've applied it to marriage. Uh, You're my everything. You complete me. You make me happy. No human soul can bear that weight. If that's what you're hoping out of marriage, in that contractual view, no human soul can bear that weight. That's meant for God. Of course marriage is important. Of course there's fulfillment out of it. Of course there is love and companionship and romance, all those things. I'm not saying that. But we also know that in marriage we change over time, don't we? I'm not my 28-year-old self that married Robin. I'm not my 38-year-old self that married Robin. Uh, We change over time. And the longer you're married, you change. You're almost a different person at times. And we know we disappoint each other over time. And add to the fact that it's two sinners that are getting married. So no no matter how perfect and airbrushed we make ourselves in the dating process, because that's what we do, given the right amount of time, every one of us would say, I married the wrong person. Or, who is this person I married? And we have seasons even where we have to learn to love the other again. How many of you have heard somebody say, love shouldn't have to be this hard? Well, why should that be? Why should that be? Ask any professional athlete or professional anything and ask them, does it ta- is it hard? Does it take a lot of work? Of course they would say that. Why would marriage and love be any different? Why would it be any different? Anything really good takes hard work. So a contractual, covenantal view, contractual view of marriage. Uh, You're here to complete me, fulfill me, you exist to make my life better. And a binding covenant view of marriage is what kept couples together when the work was really hard. Here's a second one, second consideration. The second of our first considerations. The context of Jesus' words is confrontation in this passage, not a counseling session. 
Let's, 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 we got to be uh, clear with that. He, the context here, remember, we're looking at Jesus' words. Remember, this is an encounter with his enemies, not a counseling, a pastoral counseling session. Uh, he's confronting those that want to destroy him in public, not a, a pastoral counseling uh, for a troubled couple. So we shouldn't be surprised at Jesus' in light of that uh, short, terse answer as he addresses divorce. As we said, he's not counseling a couple he's addressing his enemies. Here's a third consideration. The reality that godly leaders who believe the Bible disagree over this issue. The issue of marriage, the issue of divorce, the issue of remarriage in particular. There are godly men and women, Bible-believing leaders who oversee congregations, sometimes on the same pastoral staff even at some churches that have multiple pastors who disagree on this issue. On the one end of the spectrum, there are those who would say uh, the Bible teaches divorce is not allowed for any circumstance. There are some that hold that in the Christian church. Um, There are then some that say divorce is allowed for certain biblical expectations, but no remarriage is allowed for the, uh, the spouse while the other spouse is living. And then you have those that say remarriage is allowed for the biblically innocent party, you might say, we're going to talk about today. Um, Or even there's some that say for the biblically guilty party, remarriage is allowed. And yet, as leaders, pastors and elders of a church, we have to have a conviction on this. We have to lead. We have to shepherd each other in our congregation here. So, what do we do? What do we do? Uh, it's our fourth, it leads us to our fourth uh, challenge. Here's our, first con- our fourth consideration. Here it is. The, the challenge of holding marriage in high esteem on one hand and caring for those who have been divorced or been hurt by divorce in our congregation. So on the one hand, I want to hold marriage high today. Show it to be beautiful. God's ideal. And, and I want our youth to hear that today. I know some of you are in here today. I desperately want our youth to hear that today. On the other hand, this morning, I want to minister to those who have been divorced, those maybe who have been abandoned, those who have even uh, committed adultery in marriage. I want to minister to those and, and help remove the ongoing stigma and shame you may feel this morning with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to do that too. I want to do that too by offering that true forgiveness when we repent. So the dilemma is, how do I hold marriage and honor marriage high this morning without coming across as dismissive and defaming to those who've experienced divorce, right? But how do I encourage, on the other hand, those who have been divorced with the gospel without seeming to minimize the importance of marriage? We're gonna try to do both. And here's how. Our fifth consideration, the attempt to humbly call for obedience and at the same time offer grace, mercy, and forgiveness. That's how we're going to do it. Obedience and compassion, bold truth with tenderness, and forgiveness to those of us who have failed, as we all have in our marriages from time to time. It means as we speak truthfully about marriage today, and the fight we need to make to stay together as couples, to to work through our trials. We simultaneously love those who have been divorced and let you know that through the gospel, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom, even those who've been divorced. There are no second-class Christians. 
To the married, I say this as we emphasize forgiveness for even adultery today. Don't hear me say, oh, well, maybe then, you know, do we need to take the sin of our marriage so seriously? Or is marriage, does it matter to that much to God? It's both. It's both. So let's look to Jesus' difficult but loving words. In another showdown he has, remember we're calling them with the special council of investigation for young rabbis. He's coming into a confrontation with these Pharisees again. Here's the first thing we're going to see. By testing Jesus, the Pharisees reveal hearts intent on getting away with it, we're going to call it, on getting away with it. In this test, they reveal their hearts. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem now. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. In his final trip to Judea, to, to Jerusalem, where he will face his death, He'll face his death and and he'll be confronted uh, by his enemies. But on the way, he's confronted by this group of investigation, this special counsel that's been sent to him. So let's take a look at it. Listen to 10, 1 through 4 again, or follow along if you've got your text open. He left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees, there they are, came up, and in order to test him, there's the test, Asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. We're going to be doing some parallel of these texts today. Mark 10, Matthew 19, because of the same account. And yet there's a little more information in Matthew than in Mark. Matthew's account, chapter 19, helps give us a bit fuller understanding. Here's what they say to him as Matthew writes a little fuller account. We've got these verses coming up from Matthew 19. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, they said to him. And they also said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away. We get a little fuller uh, account in Matthew of what they said. Any reason, any cause, and Moses commanded us to do it. Moses commanded it. Essentially, the Pharisees were coming to Jesus and asking, how close can we get to the line without going over it? Or how can I get away with it? what they were asking. What can we get away with, Jesus? Tell me exactly what's okay. What's in the fine print? What's the legalities? Let me know what's okay. Yeah, love my neighbor, even if she's my wife? Jesus, let, what's, what's okay? How close can we get to the line? Because you see, divorce, it was a problem in Jesus's day too. And it was a, a chaotic problem in Moses's day. And a woman would have been at a terrible disadvantage as they were being divorced, it was as if they were being discarded for any reason. And at that time, you couldn't just go out as a woman and get a 40-hour job or maybe use some of the resources that you might use to help yourself during that time that the state or government can offer us today in some ways. You didn't have any of that. And so to be divorced, it sometimes might have felt like a death sentence. Unable to provide for themselves, many women turned to prostitution in Moses' day. Well, there were two schools of thought in Jesus' day now. Now, our contest of this conflict, there were two schools of rabbis in Jesus' day. And they were arguing over what Moses said about divorce in Deuteronomy 24, which is what, where Jesus is pointing them. Well, what did Moses say? 
They're thinking back to Deuteronomy 24. It's the only place in the entire Old Testament where the grounds and procedure for divorce are mentioned. Hold your place in Mark. We don't usually do this, but turn to Deuteronomy 24 with me. We need to this morning. I've got verse 1 popping up, but I was going to read a little further than that. Deuteronomy 24. This is the passage that they're arguing about today. Deuteronomy 24, 1. When a man takes his wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled. For that's an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So these two schools of rabbis now in Jesus' day, They were arguing over what Moses meant. On the one hand, there was this rabbi, Shammai was his name, and he said the only grounds for divorce was adultery. This is where he was more conservative, excuse me. The more permissive school was this man, Rabbi Hillel, and he said divorce could be for any indecency. A burnt meal was permission to divorce. I mean, they're literally, there's, there's ancient texts that say those kinds of things. For any indecency. Or you're just not attracted to her anymore. You know, and only men could divorce in those times, really. And now, in Jesus' days, most rabbis followed this more liberal, permissive view. That's important. That for any reason, for any reason, a woman could be sent away. Divorce was easy for men. It was easy to send them our, a, a woman on her way. Now, if in our minds... In our marriages, we're more prone to think, what are my rights? What are the loopholes? What can I get away with? What does the law allow me to do? We've missed the point of marriage, as the Pharisees did. And we're much more closer to the Pharisees than we think. Or, or you might be thinking, well, you know, I hear that, and I, 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 hey, at least I'm going to have a great marriage, but at least I'm staying married. I'm not, I'm not looking for an easy way out. I'm committed. I know God wants me to stay married. But I think I need to convey the idea this morning, too, for us. That while you may never get a piece of paper to get legally divorced, you can be married and still commit something like the sin of divorce. How many marriages are just as cold and ruthless and lifeless and filled with hate and anger as those that end in legal divorce. Is God pleased because I didn't get a piece of paper but live in a cold, loveless marriage? Of course not. God's more concerned with the harm of our our sin causes than a, a piece of paper, and so should we be. One spouse said this in a book I was reading this week, I'm not married, just undivorced. I'm not married, just undivorced. Here's another quote from that same book. Partners who live in alienation from each, alienation from each other, angry and hurt, and convinced that the other is responsible for the pain in the relationship, are missing the mark as certainly as the couple who divorces. How challenging is that? How challenging is that? So what was Moses doing? What was he doing? 
in his words in Deuteronomy 24. And what's Jesus doing? Jesus catches them. He catches them in their trap by pointing them to Moses. He says, well, what did Moses command you? Write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Here's some other verses from Matthew. As Jesus said to them, why, did, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? See, they thought Moses accepted divorce, even commanded it, and so therefore God did too. And God must be okay if Moses permitted it for anything. You have to keep in mind that in Moses' time, adultery would have been punished by death. By death. So any one of these divorces, whatever they're referring to when Moses gave permission, were something far less than adultery. Because it would have been punished by death at that time when he was handing out these certificates. How does Jesus respond in verse 5? You see it there. And Jesus said to them, Why did he give him out? Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Moses actually did it as a concession, really, in some ways, to make divorce harder because it was rampant at that time. He was trying to rein in their evil with these certificates. And actually, what he was doing was protecting women. We don't realize that. What Moses was doing in Deuteronomy 24 was protecting a woman by giving them dignity. You can't just send her away. You can't just say, get out of here. You've got to give her something to take. You've got to give her a certificate of something. Moses was protecting women. He was giving them dignity and honor. What it did was it freed the wife from accusations of adultery if she had a certificate. If she had a certificate, she was freed from the accusation of adultery. So she could remarry. Because more than likely, she had to. By necessity, almost any woman would have to. And it protected her as well, so her first husband couldn't marry her again if a second divorced from her. It kept a woman from being treated like a piece of property, which by that time in their history was kind of happening. Moses was providing for hurt and abandoned women in Deuteronomy 24. That was his main thrust and his main purpose. Not saying, sure, God permits anything for divorce. Moses' law was to curb and kind of stop the social upheaval and destruction that was there to protect women from just abandonment at any time of the day. He was trying to make divorce harder because of men's defiance against God. When you get divorced, you're not saying no to your spouse. You're not saying no to the the family structure. You're saying no to God, is what Moses was saying. He was trying to make it harder. Moses may have given a law for divorce, but Jesus says um, he didn't command it. This was a concession Moses made. This was a compromise, Jesus basically goes on to say. Of course it's wrong to divorce. So what does Jesus do as he takes them to this argument with Moses? He takes them even further back from Moses to God's intent for marriage, all the way back to the garden, because the Pharisees, did you get a sense here? They're only concerned with how to end a marriage, not with what is marriage or what takes place at the beginning of marriage. They're only concerned with how to end a marriage. So let's look at our second thing from this passage. Jesus knows, he knows the antidote to this isn't a law against divorce, but an appeal to God's ideal for marriage, which we're going to talk about for a minute. This passage is actually more about that than even divorce. It's actually more about what is God's pattern and ideal for marriage. So let's, 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 let's talk about it for a minute. Back, <clears throat> excuse me, back in Mark 10, 
verse 6, we take a look at this, and Jesus goes on, and he says, but from the beginning of creation, he goes back before Moses. God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man uh, separate. Have you ever thought about the fact that marriage is actually a a pre-political institution? Have you thought about that? Marriage is pre-political even. Where there was any societies or civilizations or, or governments, it's pre-political. It goes even further back. Marriage isn't something we invented. It's not. We didn't invent it. Marriage isn't something the state invented. Now, it's good. It can be good for the state when they used to prize marriage more. Privilege marriage with laws and tax credits, those are, that's good especially when they define it as God does. It was good when uh, the state makes divorce difficult. But all that changed dramatically with the no-fault divorce laws that California pioneered in the 60s, and the rest of the nation jumped on pretty quickly. What does Jesus say? God created marriage. God defines marriage. God recognizes marriage. And therefore, God gets to say what marriage is. We didn't invent it. And if we begin to, if that's true, that God defines it, creates it, identifies it, puts the parameters on it, if we begin to tamper with that and destroy it, it will bring upheaval. There's no, there's no way around that. Personally, and in our society as well. Culturally. It's a, a rabbit trail, but one, it's one of the reasons we have homosexual marriage today is that heterosexual marriage has been redefined. That's the reason. We think it's just an agenda by one group. It's not. Marriage has been totally redefined from covenant to the government putting its stamp of approval on your romance. It's an easy step from there. An easy step from there. God created it. So what does Jesus say marriage is? Here's the first thing. There's two things we're going to talk about. Marriage is the intimate, very intimate, one flesh union of a man and a woman. One flesh union. There is nothing like sex, I said it, sex, that brings two people closer, together. Not just physically, it is that, but intimately and emotionally. The male and female bodies we talk about were made to fit and bring forth children. You could call it natural law. Intimacy. It's so intimate that Jesus calls it one flesh. It's a bond that we have with our spouse that we don't even have with our children that come from that union. It's intimate. So intimate that it's one of the mysterious purposes of sex even, and God designing our bodies differently, is to point to Jesus and the church. It's really strange. In talking about the one flesh union, Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying, he's talking about one flesh union, it refers to Christ and the church. The union and intimacy, even of of intercourse now, points to the intimacy Christ has with his church. And because God is always faithful to us and will never leave or forsake us nor cheat on us, he makes marriage permanent to mirror that. Here's the second one. Marriage is permanent. 
It's a one flesh union of a male and female who leave their father and mother and cleave to their spouse. The two become one in this intimate union, but then God also says it is permanent. It's a one flesh union of a man and woman that's to be exclusive and lifelong, monogamous fidelity until, we used to say it in the, the, uh, the uh, vows, until death do us part. We know that phrase. And Jesus says here, let not man separate it, Jesus says. So technically, you can get a piece of paper that says you are divorced. You can leave the house. But this one flesh union is so deep and permanent, if you divorce a spouse for anything other than adultery, which we're going to talk about more, in the eyes of God, you're still married. That's what Jesus says. Look at verses 10 through 12 of this passage. On, the, on their, their bold face, just kind of meaning. In the house, the disciples asked him again. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. We'll talk in a moment about Matthew 19 and uh, that exception clause we're going to talk about in a minute. But we've got to address some real situations for a minute now with these truths. We've got to make this like real life practical because I know... Uh, Every one of us in this room has been impacted by sins and marriages, by divorces, by remarriages, by whether you're a spouse or a child sitting in this room now in the middle of warring parents, maybe. We got to address some real life situations. So I want to speak to our young people for a minute. Those who are not married yet, uh, maybe someone who's single, even con- considering marriage. I-, I want to talk to you for a minute. Or if you're considering, uh, here's the first one. What if you're considering dating or marrying someone who does not profess faith in Christ? You're a follower of Jesus. You, have, you love Jesus. You've professed faith in him, and yet you have all attraction, and you seem to get along, and you seem to desire this person, and they, they make you happy, and it just feels right, and it feels good. Here's my words. Don't do it. I got to be clear to some of our youth. Don't do it. Why? Well, number one, it's never right. It's never honoring to God. And we could say, uh, if you marry someone who's not a follower of Christ, that it would even be sin. But the reason is not, hear this please, the reason is not because you are better than that person. The reason is not because you are holier than that person or that God doesn't love them either. That's not the reason. Or that God doesn't want you to find true love. It is the fact that it is the most intimate relationship you would ever have with a spouse. And your relationship to Jesus is supposed to be even more intimate. So one of two things will happen. Take a look at this picture, this beautiful picture of downtown Portland. That's not what it looks like today, but uh, that's uh, just a picture of downtown Portland here. Here's what happens. If you are a Christian considering marrying a non-Christian, one of two things will happen. Look at this city center there. That's the downtown area. Let's picture that as our, our heart the center of our life, the city center there, okay? When you become a Christian, Jesus begins to reside in the center of who you are, your heart. He resides there. He lives there, which means it directs the course, he directs the course of your life because he's in the central place of importance. So let's say you come along and you marry somebody who doesn't have that same relationship with Christ, doesn't view him as the center of, sitting in the center of his heart or her heart, in the center of the city of their life. One of two things will happen. 
Either Jesus will remain in the center of that one spouse's heart, and their, their spouse will sort of kind of revolve on the peripheral, out there in the suburbs, or maybe even back uh, by Mount Hood back there. They'll sort of revolve around your life that way. You'll never share a same worldview. You'll never share common love of Jesus. You'll never be able to agree on how to raise the children. And they'll sort of just revolve on the suburbs of your life if Jesus stays in the center of your life. But here's the other thing that tends to happen more. Jesus gets moved out to the suburbs. And because you want a good marriage, because you need peace with your spouse, your spouse moves into the city, the center of your heart. And then so what happens is Jesus begins to rotate and, 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 and move around your life way out in the suburbs, maybe even on the other side of Mount Hood. That's why. That's why he says, if you're a believer, marry a believer. It's not because you're holier. It's because life, it's, 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 it's incompatible in so many ways. He says it's like being unequally yoked, pulling two different directions or a lifelong tug of war. That's why, because he loves you. What if you're already married to someone who's not a disciple of Christ? What do you do? And you hear these things. Do you now divorce them? No, no, no. Paul had that problem in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, he says, no, stay with them. Live your faith out in front of your spouse and kids. And who knows what God will do with it? If you find yourself, maybe you became a Christian after you married somebody who wasn't. He says, no. Even if they don't realize how blessed they are to have a Christ follower in the house. Because that's what Paul says. He says, who knows? Who knows how God will use you? What if for the first time today, here's another one. What if for the first time today you are realizing, I left my spouse without a biblical reason. And now I'm in a second marriage. Have I committed adultery? Should I now leave this second marriage? Well, rather than come undone today, look at it this way. Maybe for you today, if you're realizing that for the first time today, maybe for you today is the beginning of finally having true freedom in your life. For the first time, for yourself and for your second marriage maybe, and spouse, how? Repent. Repent. Repent of that sin. Maybe you did leave your spouse for unbiblical reasons. Repent of it, even if you're married again. Repent of maybe even what began in that second marriage is sin and find freedom today. Find freedom today. Stop shaming yourself and, and living as a, a second-class citizen with a big D, a scarlet D, you know, on your, on your chest. Repent and find freedom in the gospel today. It's available. It's here now. And then love your new spouse well. Move forward loving your new spouse well. What did John write? We got to hear this today. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness except the sin of divorce. No. No. All. All unrighteousness. Adultery and divorce, hear this please, are not the unforgivable sins. They are not. And praise God they're not. They are not the unforgivable sins. You are not a second-class Christian. Find freedom and forgiveness today. What if you're realizing today for the first time that God hates divorce and you feel right now like you and your spouse are headed in that direction? I would say this. Fight for your marriage with all you have. 
Fight for it with everything you have. God desires reconciliation. And so he desires reconciliation in broken marriages. So reconcile. What if you're a child caught in the middle of warring parents? Look how lovingly Jesus speaks of children right next to the divorce passage. Do you think that's on accident? I don't think so. He loves children. He wants to be with you. He wants to know you. A lot of our kids are gone, so it's probably not in here today. But God loves the children. Look at 10, 13 through 16. Let's just read it real quick, and then we'll, we'll move to our final point today. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He took them in his arms. He blessed them, laying his hands on them. We'll hit that passage next week or next time with the rich young ruler, but we need to finish here. The biblical grounds for divorce. That's where we'll finish today. The biblical grounds for divorce that come out of this passage in the parallel in Matthew 19. The parallel passage, as I said in Matthew, gives us the fuller picture of the fact that while God never, God never commands divorce, God intends for marriage to be lifelong, to be permanent, there seems to be, as much as there even is a lot of debate about this, there seems to be an exception. Again, as I said, Matthew 19 is the parallel passage to Mark 10. Here's what Jesus says there. And I say to you, you'll see it popping up on the screen. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality and marries another, commits adultery. By understanding this passage, we come to the center, really, of Christ's teaching on divorce. So here's a few things. First, we know this. Jesus never commands divorce. He never says if adultery happens, you must get divorced. And there are some couples who have worked through major stuff, even infidelities, and they've come to a place of saying, we're a better place now than I have ever been, we've ever been. I know some actually. And most couples who contemplate divorce, most studies show that if they wait five years, if they would just wait a few years, they're, they're, they've worked through it and they're way happier than they ever were before. Most studies show that. You don't hear that. But it's the case. And God desires reconciliation, doesn't he? But there does seem to be one, and I would say pretty clearly only one exception and Jesus makes. It's not a concession as Moses did, but I do think he lays down a principle for us. I like how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. We go to some of my favorite theologians and pastors and when there's issues where I'm like, where do we go with this? Here's what he said. It is this question of the one flesh again. The person who's guilty of adultery has broken the bond and has become united to another. The link has gone. The one flesh no longer obtains and therefore divorce is legitimate. Let me emphasize again, it's not a commandment, but it's a ground for divorce. And a man or woman who finds him herself in that position is entitled to divorce. And as Jesus lays down this principle, I think actually at this moment, moving forward in history, we no longer stone somebody to death as they did in the Old Testament for adultery. I think he lays down a new principle. 
the great, Christ, the great lawgiver, makes divorce permissible for this one exception. Not commands it, but there still is a death of sorts, isn't there? Of that one flesh union. But wait, you might say, I, I didn't want a divorce. I didn't want a divorce. And neither of us committed adultery, and yet my husband left me, or my wife left me. Am I, does that mean I'm now committing adultery if I remarry? No, I don't think so. Or you might say, well, my spouse is abusive. Are you saying I should just grin and bear it if adultery is the only exception? I'm not saying that either. Let's look quickly at one more place which will answer both those questions, I think. Jesus does seem to, he seems to make an exception for adultery. Paul makes an exception for the believer deserted by the unbeliever. You'll see it on the screen in front of me out of 1 Corinthians 7.15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In Corinth, there were many believers who became Christians after marrying and thought, well, God's calling me to purity, to wholeness, so I shouldn't have sex again ever with a non-Christian if they don't follow along with following Christ. They were thinking that and saying that. And Paul says to them, or as they said, well, I, they said, I need to divorce this person now. And Paul said, no, 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 no. We already mentioned that. You, you stay married. You stay married. Who knows how you'll bless them by being a disciple of Jesus in the house? You're a great blessing to them. But what do you do if your non-believing spouse leaves you? What do you do? I believe you have the freedom to let them go, as Paul says in this passage. I do believe that. And if that's the case, I do believe you have the freedom, too, to remarry. And I would more than likely probably put abuse in that category as well. I think these are ones that are discussed and counseled on a case-by-case, -case, but I'd probably put it there as well. An abusive spouse is not showing the fruit of, an, of a believer, somebody who follows Christ, and how could that not be an abandoning of the marriage covenant? So we do see some exceptions. So here's a little summary. As the innocent party is, seems to be allowed and, and permitted to remarry for sexual morality, by, by desertion, uh, desertion by an unbeliever, and if the divorce was pre-conversion, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he was in Christ as a new creation. The old is gone. I believe that. It was before your conversion too. So what's the effect then of this heavy teaching today? Because it is. I realize all the scenarios we highlighted, there are some of us in here who were part or caused or were the recipient of. Well, number one, we, ha we have to hold marriage high. I mean, I, I would think anybody even who's been in the difficulty of divorce today would say, hey, it's, it's worth it for me to sit here and be uncomfortable for the sake of our youth today that need to hear the importance of marriage. I think, I think we would all agree on that. Say, it's, it's, I can sit here. I can be here. They need to hear that. So let's do everything we can, and we will continue to do, and to redeem and restore broken marriages, and to do hopefully preemptive work at Bethany Church along the way so that we have a culture of healthy marriages. We have to do that. We have to speak and talk about marriage a lot. So let's do that. Let's do the hard work along the way so there's less work, hopefully, for us on the backside of divorce in Bethany Church. Let's, we got to do that. We got to commit to that. If you're considering marriage for the first time or remarriage today, I would say this take these words seriously. Take Jesus' words seriously. 
pastors are involved in the beginning of marriage. So if your marriage has ended and you're reconsidering, why would they not be involved at both ends? Let me in if you're having trouble. One of our elders. Talk. Seek wisdom. Don't go it alone. Some of us today, as we said, just need the gospel today. Some of you just need the mercy and forgiveness and grace and the freedom to give it to yourself today because you've been holding a weight over your head. And if Christ has forgiven you of sins, if Jesus died to pay all sins, why do you still hold it over your own head? Let the cross cover it today. And some of you may find freedom in even a second marriage today from things in the past that you've never experienced today because you're acknowledged today, wow, the Bible says that about marriage and divorce? For some, it means a deep soul searching and maybe, as I said, a fresh repentance and forgiveness today. But you got to hear that today. It is available. We're going to Martin Lloyd-Jones to close again. He's so wise. He's not alive anymore. He's an old British pastor, but here's how he closed a message on this same topic. He said, on the basis of the gospel, and in the interest of truth, I'm compelled to say this, even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. He said, it's a terrible sin, but God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside of the love of God or outside his kingdom because of adultery. No, and I say it just as emphatically, no, no. If you truly repent, and that's of any sin, and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven, and I assure you of your pardon, he said. But hear the word of our blessed Lord, all of us today, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And that's my word to us as well. Let's pray. Lord, this is a a heavy topic, a hard topic, a difficult topic, but obviously one Jesus, as you were heading to the cross, thought your disciples needed to hear about. And so today, Lord Jesus, I know everybody in this room is hearing this sermon differently and applying it in different ways and thinking of their own circumstances or their own loved one's circumstances, God. And I pray that you would bring, by the power of your Spirit, a clarity to our hearts and minds. Bring a clarity uh, to us on this. We couldn't say everything today in one sermon. Uh, I do pray that what I said was clear, and I pray biblical, Lord. Strengthen our marriages. Lord, offer forgiveness and mercy to those, all of us really, because we all fail in our marriages from time to time. Give us that grace and mercy, I pray. And may we look forward to our marriages, future relationships, things we have at Bethany Church, And take Jesus' words to heart. Go and sin no more. By the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.